Well, after an introduction like that, I hope I can live up to all of that. But I appreciate it. It's fun to come speak to people that you know. And uh, sometimes I go places where I don't know anybody. And I always feel like they're looking at me like, who are you? But at least um, we have some connection. Uh, Our topic for today is loving the Lord your God with all of your soul. And I have added with a burp cloth on your shoulder. And I'll explain that as we go along of why I did put that in. Uh, I think you used uh, where it's recorded in Matthew. I just am using it from uh, Mark. So let's just begin by looking at the passage. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And you know the intent of this kind of lawyer-like person in coming and asking Jesus this, is he was expecting that Jesus would answer a commandment that he excelled well in. He was kind of like his motive was, let Jesus say what was really important, and then he would be able to say, I do that. But Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is unique. He is single. He is the one true living God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first command. And what Jesus did is he answered him straight from the Old Testament. He answered him from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And so he was actually answering him with something the man should have already known. Because all of Scripture meshes together. All of Scripture is true from beginning to end. And so Jesus was just repeating what he had already told them in Deuteronomy. I was working, I like to work crossword puzzles. And at this stage of life, I actually do get to do them once in a while. There was a period of life, never could do that, but now I can once in a while. So the clue for this particular puzzle for one of the items was lovers. And it had nine blanks. And I could not think of a word to put in there that was lovers with just um, nine letters. And as I got some of the other letters, what I came to realize eventually was that the word was soulmates. And I thought, that's a good kind of thought for our uh, lesson today. Loving the Lord your God with all your soul is really like becoming soulmates with God. So I did a little bit of research on the actual um, history of the word soulmates. I thought, where did that term come from? And so when I looked it up in Wikipedia, which you know is the authority on lots of things, it said that the word came from mythology, so it it didn't come from uh, authenticity, but from mythology. And here was the idea of mythology, is that human beings in this particular um, myth had four legs, four arms, and uh, one head with two faces. And Zeus the mythological god, feared their power and their strength. And so he cut them in half, and they were then condemned to spend the rest of their lives searching for the other half so that they could be complete, hence soulmates. Now, as with a lot of what is false in our culture, there's some element of truth in it, and so there's some corollary of truth in that myth. Adam and Eve were soulmates with God, and Satan feared that powerful relationship. And so that relationship, that soulmate relationship was destroyed. And there is in us a hunger and a thirst to find a soulmate. And we seek out a lot of substitutes for it. The amazing thing about God is that he seeks us because he desires that soulmate relationship with us. And he seeks us so that we become complete in him, which is what Colossians 2.10 tells us. So what we want to do to start with today in talking about, whoops, loving God with, I I didn't want to go to quite that slide yet. I'm not real good at doing this, Uh, having to be multitasking here, is to talk about, and on your outline I do have, to talk about the definition of soul. Because before you can talk about being a soulmate or how to love God with all of your soul, we need to know what we're talking about. And as I research this, girls, this is a very complex thing, soul, what is soul. And so there's not this little simple definition. And so I'm just going to discuss some little aspects of it quickly before we get into loving God with it uh, that will maybe help us understand it. And uh, to be biblical, 
to start back in the Old Testament in Exodus 20, chapters 25 through 30, God gave instructions to the Israelites on how to construct a tabernacle. And it was going to be the place where he would come and dwell with them. And so he gives very complete instructions. And I just want to look at one aspect of the tabernacle. And that is that it had three parts. It had a fence around the outer part and created this outer court. You could enter it through a a kind of a tent gate there. And in this outer court, then in the center, there was a tent. And this tent had one opening to it, a doorway that was just a tent opening. And that inside that tent part, it was divided into two sections. And there was this huge veil between the two sections. And the front section was the holy place, and the back section was the most holy place. Now, there were no windows in this tent. So when you were in the outer court... You had no way of access to that holy place except to come in that front doorway to the holy place. And then only once a year in that time, someone could go through that veil into the most holy place. Now, when they finished making the tabernacle, God was not in the holy place when they finished making it. And they could not put him there. They could not say, okay, now we'll put God in the most holy place. No, God himself chose to come and enter it and to dwell there. And from that holy place, then he affected the holy place, which then affected the outer courtyard. And so I just wanted us to see this analogy, because basically, as human beings, we have a threefold nature. And I've just used circles to represent this, but the outer one being our body, and the next one being our soul, and the next one being our spirit. Now, uh, the Bible does say some things about... Uh, these three parts of us. The uh, body part is referred to biblically as the carnal man, and you'd find that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. The soul part is referred to as the natural man, and that's in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then the inner circle being the spiritual part as 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Now, Adam and Eve were true soulmates with God, and their soul, their spirit was illuminated from heaven. But when the fall came, that is the part of them that died, the spirit part. And there was no longer that illumination from heaven to their spirits. And then it was like a veil was put within us between our body, soul, and spirit. And that would be our will. Now, God has done everything to regenerate and rebirth the spiritual part of us. But we have to be willing to receive that. And then that, that gives us new birth and regenerates our spirit. But when you are born, your spiritual, your spirit within you is dead. It is not alive. And now if we're going to use some theological terms for what happens here, when the spirit enters into our spirit and regenerates it, that is justification. Just as if I'd never sinned. And then the Spirit wants to fill us, and it works through our soul, the natural man, and that is sanctification. And that then affects our body, and one day, our body will be totally glorified. So you have justification, sanctification, and glorification going on, all being the work of the Spirit, which we have accepted what God did to uh, redeem that. Now, I want to show you, oh, I do want to mention, too, that if you want to look at what happens in each of these areas, a good place biblically to go is Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6 is what happens when the Spirit comes in, and that's your infancy. Romans 7 is what happens in that sanctification period, and that's your teenage years. This is how I would explain it to my children. And then uh, Romans 8 is what happens when you mature and eventually where it's glorified. So that's another place to go to look to get some information about that. But I want to talk about how I taught this to my children. And I did it just in a real crude form, nothing real polished. But I just would cut out some figures. And uh, let me take them off here to start. And I would just say that your body is a body house that you live in, but the real you is separate from your body house. It lives within you. And when you are born, the real you has a bent towards sin. And so I would just cut 
another little figure that would be like their soul and uh, spirit. And I would just color it dark. And I would say, uh, you know, you know how to sin. And I would just talk about with them now. You knew that all by yourself. I did not have this session where I sat down with all of you and I said, Now, today, I am going to teach you to be selfish. And when your friend Mike comes over, you grab the toy back and you say, Mine. And I want to hear you practice that today so that you can get really good at it. That did not happen. They all knew how to do that. I had to spend all my time working on getting them to let the Spirit change that in them. And so then I would say to them, when you receive and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your soul, in God's eyes, is washed clean. And I would just put a little red cross to represent that then they did have a spiritual life within them. But you still reside in your body house. And then I would talk to them, when someone would die, we would talk about that when you die, your body house dies. It wears out. And then death is separation. So there's a separation of your body house and the real you that lives inside. And your body house is just put somewhere in a grave. And the real you goes to be with Jesus. And that one day, your body house will be resurrected. When Jesus comes back, you will come with him and your body house will be resurrected. And then I would just show them that when that happens, their body would be uh, different. And I just would use yellow to show it would be glorious when that happened. Now, what happens to us when we die? and our uh, soul and spirit is separated from our body house, you do not become a ghost or a spirit that just melds in with the whole spiritual universe. No, you still have some form of body. And Paul called it kind of a soulish body, but here's my word for it. I don't know exactly what that body's going to look like when your body house that you know right now wears out and is put in the ground, but it will have a form. It will be a body, and I just call it you're hanging out with Jesus' body because that's what you're going to be doing until he returns and resurrects your body house and makes it glorious, and I call that the perfecto body. And it just means it's perfect. It's not going to age. It's not going to get hurt. It's not going to, you know, all these things that happen to our body. So I just use that terminology with them. Now, I think it's very beneficial to discuss this with your children, and here's why. When they get to teenage years and there's all this talk about suicide, they will understand death is not an ending. Death is a separation, and the real you inside goes on forever. And that makes a big difference when you're discussing suicide and you're thinking. And so not only for their benefit, but they can also then talk about that with their friends to let them know that. Now, uh, I think my next slide here is the uh, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in um, to our, our uh, spirit and resides there. And the Spirit desires to uh, fill both our souls and then affect our body. Now, um, our physical world is mind-boggling. It's just mind-boggling. It, may, it makes you just understand things about God. Our physical body is mind-boggling. The more scientists get into how your body is made, it's just mind-boggling. But, you know, girls, your soul is also mind-boggling. It's just that you don't see and know exactly what it's like. But it is just, it has as much depth, your soul has as much depth, as uh, the physical world and your physical body. And so when it says in Psalms 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that includes your soul. Now, I did some um, just brainstorming in my own mind about things that uh, could describe your soul. And so I came up with uh, a list of 65. I am not going to, you will be glad, I am not going to go through all 65 of them with you this morning. I'm just going to mention one or two off of the list, but what I want you to have the feeling is that when we say loving God with all of your soul, we're not talking about this flat cardboard thing within you. We are talking about a lot of depth. So let me just uh, mention one or two of these. In your soul, you can be a depender. You can be a depender on God, or you could be a depender on yourself. You can be an encourager. You can, you, your soul is eternal. There is no point once you are born that your soul will not have consciousness. 
It is eternal. It is going to go on forever. Uh, the, your soul is also the great equalizer. The soul of the king and the soul of the beggar have both the same potential and ability to be rightly related to God and to be with him in eternity or without him in eternity. So it's a great equalizer. Your soul can go to hell. That's just a fact. And that is something eventually you need to discuss with your children. Your soul can be a loner. It can be a laugher. Uh, it can be a magnifier, as Mary in her uh, song after the uh, Holy Spirit or the angel had told her what was going to come to pass. She magnified the Lord with her soul. Uh, your soul is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Your, your mind and heart to me is kind of like a balcony where it's thinking, making decisions. But your soul is where that, that, all that thinking or feeling comes out to really meet life in true reality. Your soul can be a shepherdess. It can be a sin fleer. It can be a sinner. I put that one on there twice because that's such a problem in your soul. Your soul is also, uh, and I don't have this one on here. I, I went back and added it. Evidently didn't do so on the slide. But in the T's, your soul can be is terrorist proof. And uh, just terrorists can do things to your body, but they cannot destroy your soul because your soul is going to last forever. And I remember reading a while back Sochaniskin's Gulag Archipelago, where he would say they tormented him all the day, but when he did lie down, he could still talk to God and he could remember who he was in God. And they could not take that away from him, no matter what they did. So I thought in this time and age, this is a good thing to remember. And your soul can be a worshiper. Uh, so talking about loving God with all of your soul, the thing that it says this is an amazing thing. It says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Before God formed you in your mother's belly, or you were conceived and planted there, God knew you. God knew all of this stuff about your soul. That was all something he knew about you, even before that. And as I was meditating on that, I just thought, that makes abortion even worse. Because we're just seeing it, people are just seeing it as this little glob. But God knows all of that about this glob, because it is a person. And so it just makes me realize how far off we are from God's plan and design. Now, your soul is unique. It is what makes you you. Judy, without her body, is still Judy. There's just something about me that makes up me, and that still goes on, even without my body. And that's why I had you answer the question about nail polish this morning. I looked up on OPI. They have more than 250 different bottles of nail polish, and they all have unique names for them. And do you know why they are able to do that and stay in business? Because all of us are very unique. Even at our table, as we went around, somebody had gray, somebody liked gray, somebody liked cherry pie, somebody liked china red. I have Shrek blue on my toes, and my granddaughters have some other Shrek colors on there. So there, there's just this uniqueness about us. And I just saw a real good example of soulishness recently. I had all of, uh, we have eight grandchildren, and a ninth one should be born next week if it comes on time. But we had the eight of them together at one point during the summer. And so the three older little girls, who are like six and five and four, wanted to do a talent show for us. And so they had us all collect, and they were going to entertain us by singing uh, some song that they had on a little iPod thing. And so since the space was limited, what I did is I got hula hoops, and I put down, and each one of them stood in a hula hoop, because I had bought a lot of hula hoops for this week that they were all going to be there. And so each of them stood within a hula hoop, and that was their space. And each of them had a play microphone. And so essentially they had the same space. They had the same microphone. They were doing the same song. But as I watched them, they were so different. They were doing the same thing, but they were very different. One of them was just so intense, and she just had a hard time staying in her hula hoop, and she had this huge smile, and she was just radiant. And one of them was just so demure 
and so had such a stage presence, almost mysterious. And then one of them is just this tiny little thing that's just like a little ballerina, and she was just graceful about it all. And so I thought, they're all so different. That's part of their soulishness. So when we're talking about loving the Lord your God with all of your soul, we're not talking about setting aside your uniqueness. We're talking about how to incorporate your uniqueness in loving the Lord with all of your heart and soul. And so it's a huge subject. It is one that you will not finish until eternity and you're, you're perfecto in every way. And so I'm not coming here and saying you go do this and then you'll have that down on how to love the Lord your God with all your soul. That's not true. You know, I feel like at my age, I still wake up every morning and I'm still asking God to help me learn about that. So I'm narrowing it down. I want to discuss it in one way of thinking about the stage of life that you are in, and that's what I'm calling a burnt cloth on your shoulder. Because as I look back, what I realize is that my spiritual growth has looked different in different seasons of life. And what I realized is that when I was younger, I didn't uh, embrace that. I was sometimes very discontent within that stage of life of thinking, oh, I could do this or I could do that, and not realizing. Just embrace this. And love the Lord your God with all of your soul here. And so I want to narrow it somewhat to talking about with a burp cloth on your shoulder. And I decided I would just narrow it to three things. And I'm just going to use an acronym of the word soul. And so we'll just take an S and talk about saving your soul. And O for obeying Jesus. And the U and L to combine for utterly loving God. Um, so let's begin with uh, saving your soul. It's an oxymoron, biblically, because what the Bible says is you save your soul by losing it. Matthew 10.39, he that finds his life will lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake will find it. That same thought of losing it in order to find it is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And any time God repeats things... He means, open your ears, pay attention, important. And then Matthew 10.28 says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both your soul and body in hell. And so uh, we want to look at how in this stage of life, with a burp cloth on your shoulder, how can you save your soul or find your soul by losing it? Our natural soul is clothed in our body house, our flesh, is born with a desire to hang out, hang out with, hang on to, and look out for yourself. And our natural soul, I just put down some words, it's self-preserving, it's self-enhancing, it's self-exalting, it's self-esteeming, self-advancing, self-centered, self-pitting. Do you get the picture? It is self Self, self, and you can add a lot of adjectives to it. Now, after redemption, after the Spirit, we've allowed the Spirit to come in to redeem us, we have the option, the privilege, and the power by God's Spirit to lay down our souls and let God's Spirit direct them. That means, though, that we die to our agenda, our hopes, our dreams, our plans, our wants, our wishes, and we entrust ourselves to God for his plans for us, that he says are for our good and our benefit. And so once again, when I say dying, I'm meaning separate, separating yourself from that selfness to letting the Spirit direct all of those areas of your life, not for you just to give up everything and have nothing. And again, I would just say it is a lifelong um, process. Now, I just want to share some things that I feel like looking back, have helped me in this area, although I'm not at the end of that road. And looking back to um, what it was in the Burke Cloth uh, era of my life, and here's what I realized. In this stage of your life, God has blessed you with a unique opportunity to die to yourself and live as a sacrificing servant because you cannot get up and be a wife and mother without doing that. It's built in. You cannot get up and think, I'm not caring about anybody else today. I'm just caring about me. And if any of you have um, do wake up and think that, you're in trouble. 
because it's just natural here. God has provided it. And what I realized is it took me a long time to embrace that and think, you know what? This is a rare opportunity I have to learn how to be a servant, to learn how to die to myself, and to embrace it and ask God's Spirit to help me do it in His power so that it could have real meaning. Uh, Do not think that this culture and this earthly existence is going to reward you adequately for what it takes to be a good wife and mother. It is not going to do that for you. But you know what? Becoming God's soulmate in the purpose and the role to which he has called you to be wife and mother will give you blessing and reward now greater than you would think And it definitely will in eternity. You will definitely be rewarded for that. And so let that be motivation for you to embrace the type of sacrifice and the type of dying to self that it takes. And here is what I remember in those years. And I still have to remember this now, but I just remember this so poignantly when in the burp cloth years. Is you've got to come back to the Lord constantly to get the bread that you need to feed the, quote, masses around you, which is what it begins to feel like some days. Now, for me, the worst time in my life in the Burke Cloth years was getting dinner on the table. It just seemed like from 4 o'clock on until they were in bed was just chaos. And so I would just have to constantly come to the Lord in that time frame and say, Lord, will you give me the bread that I need to get something put out here for them to eat and something, you know, to just get them toward, moving toward bedtime. Just get me through this time period. By the way, one of the things the Lord really taught me in that time frame was set the table first. Because it makes them think something is coming. And it really did help. And so I learned that. And so every day in my house, at a certain time, the table gets set. And that way you know there is going to be eventually food there, but you're not having to come and ask me about it constantly. So um, that's just one thing I just remember... I remember asking the Lord to help me be creative, resourceful, etc., to figure out how to manage that time period. And that was one of the things the Lord said, well, just start with setting the table every day. And, and he led me to some other things that, that helped make that uh, a lot better time. But it was just a time frame I remember. I could not get through that without coming back to the Lord. And just like the disciples in feeding the 5,000 had to come back and say, we're running out of bread. But he had another basket. You know, was, he could keep giving it out. And um, John Piper used a great analogy that I thought fits in with this um, saving your soul by losing it. He said you're either going to be a telescope or a microscope. And he said that a telescope makes something great look like it really is great. And that's what we should be for the Lord. And so in this loving the Lord with all our soul in the burnt cloth years, ask God to make you a telescope where your dependence on him, your death to yourself, allows God's spirit to work in you in such a way that it really allows God to look as great as he really is. And then John Piper said the other thing you can be is a microscope which makes something small look big and that if you are not dying to yourself, then what you are doing is making your small self look big all the time. And he gave these two, I thought, great examples. He said, suppose you got to go to the Alps during the winter, and it's this beautiful, beautiful scenery, but your room was just solid mirrors all the way around you. There was no window. You never saw the Alps outside of it. But what did you see the whole week you were there? Yourself. And he said, that's just sickening thinking about But he said, that's how we live life a lot of time. Or he said, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you think about how great you are as you're standing there, that's pathological, he said. (laughs) So uh, I thought that was just a great analogy. And so to think about during loving the Lord your God with all of your soul and being willing to save your soul by losing it. Think of yourself as a telescope, that you're going to allow God to be represented so well in the greatness that he is. Then for the O is obeying Jesus. And just looking at what scripture says, Jesus said himself, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
And then in John 14, 23, if a man loves me, he will keep my words. And Hebrews 12, 2, when talking about how to run the race, it says, look to Jesus. And Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the last thing he said, and I'm going to talk about this at the end of this one, is go therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. So it seems to me that to love the Lord your God with all of your soul, you've got to be obeying Jesus. There's just no other way that you can love him biblically without obeying him. And so I thought that um, just one way to help you do that is just, I just made a list, compiling it from several different sources, of Jesus' general commands in the Gospels from Matthew through John. And so that's in your outline. And just think of this as a cliff note version of Jesus' commands. Like, I didn't... It doesn't include things like where Jesus said to somebody, go get the donkey. It wasn't that, it's not that kind of thing. It's just the general commands from Matthew. So it's not an exhaustive list. But what I wanted to do was to put something in your hands. And then what I want to challenge you to do is just maybe take one of these a month or something and think, how do I obey Jesus in this command with a burp cloth on my shoulder? In other words, what's it going to look like in this season of life and asking God to help you be creative and resourceful about obeying him during this season of life and just working it into what your life is like now. I mean, I started out like I wanted to be the greatest uh, minister to women ever and I would write lots of books and, you know, do all this stuff and then I realized one day sitting in my living room as I watched some neighborhood women standing on their lawn talking and I realized I could not carry on a conversation with an adult because I had these four children hanging on to me. And so it was just a point where I said, Lord, so what is it going to look like for me here? How do I obey you? And so God just really, this last command that he gave, the one about go and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, which is, he's really saying go and make disciples. I just remember sitting in my living room that day with all four of them hanging on me and thinking, Oh, maybe you're thinking that these are my disciples. And it's not out there and beyond. And sure enough, that was really what he was impressing me with. And so for me to obey that command during those burp cloth years was to think, how do I disciple my children? How do I teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you? Notice the verb in that is teaching. That's how that's going to take place is by teaching. And so I did change kind of my thinking and say, okay, Lord, then help me be unique in my soul and be resourceful and creative then to teach my children. And here's what I have found now as I look back. And I just want to give you two examples that kind of floor me about the whole thing. I had so many children in my house, because when you have four, and then they all have somebody with them, and sometimes more than one person with them, then pretty quick you have eight, nine, or ten. And so what I realized is they're automatically here. I don't have to go out and knock on the door and say, could I collect your child for something? They were at my house, which I did want. I liked that. And so I had a good news club, and I started it when the children were seven, five, three, and one. And I had it for 15 years every week on Tuesday. Now, I never sat down and said, oh, why don't I do a good news club on Tuesdays for 15 years? It just started, and it just kept going and kept going and kept going. So when the one that was one was 15, I did stop having it, mainly because the third one was playing basketball and his games were at the same time as the Good News Club. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop this for now. But for that 15 years, I had kids from all over my neighborhood come, constantly, constantly, constantly. And here's what God brought. He brought one little girl. Her mother, she was Vietnamese, and her mother called me, did not speak very good English. She worked, and she wanted to know if I would pick this child up. I didn't know this child. She wasn't friends with my children, but somehow this lady knew me in the neighborhood, she said, would I pick up her child every day and drop her at her house where this child would stay by herself for the rest of the day she got home from work? And, you know, ordinarily I would have thought, are you kidding? I'm picking up a carload as it is. I think I can take on picking up your child. But then it was like God said to me, but wait, 
you wanted to disciple, and here's somebody who needs disciple. So I did. I told this lady yes. So I picked, but I said I have a Bible club for children on Tuesday, so she will have to come to the Bible club because I can't go take her to your house because I'm bringing other kids with me to the house and we have it. And after it's over, I'll take her to your house. So this child came to my house that whole year to uh, Good News Club. She had never seen a Bible in her life. She did not know who Jesus was. She had a good mind, and we memorized verses at Good News Club, and you got stupid little prizes, you know, the kind that you throw, you're looking to throw away the next day. But she had a quick mind, and she memorized all the verses. Now, when I ever ask if anybody wanted to come and talk to me about how to have a relationship with Jesus, she never responded. Never. Now, my youngest daughter went to her, when she went to her 10-year high school class reunion, this girl was there, and she works in the government in some kind of diplomatic thing, because she was real bright, and she said to this daughter, I know about Jesus because I came to your house and your mother taught us. And so it was like God brought the world to me. I couldn't go to Vietnam, but he brought it to me. And in the course of that 15 years, we made up this little song and ditty and did the gospel fuzzy, you know, that you wear the little glove, and we did that for one club. And then uh, Child Evangelism bought that from me, bought it. It was 30, they paid me $30. Uh, they bought the copyright to it. And that goes all over the world. And one of the uh, CEF missionaries always sends me pictures when she's in China or someplace, and here are these people with a gospel fuzzy on their hand. And so, see, I thought I wanted to be a minister to women, and I had this all planned out. But God said, if you will just disciple your children, let that flow over to the children who are with them. I'll take care of the rest. And so this funny thing of every day I pray that somebody will pack the gospel fuzzies and carry it in their suitcase because it's easy to take somewhere with them in the world to teach children about Jesus. And this morning I brought one to my husband because a group's leaving from Watermark to go to Ethiopia and they're going to take a gospel fuzzy with them to have there. So isn't that amazing? And it wasn't, anything, it wasn't my idea. I didn't plan that out and think this is how I could do this. Let me check the time so I don't. Okay. Uh, And then there's one other example that I want to give you. I took James's shirts to a laundry near my house uh, to be starched because I don't starch. (laughs) It's one of the things I told him I don't starch. I can iron, but I don't starch and iron. So anyway, I took them there to be laundered. And I noticed um, during the summer when it was really hot and the cleaners just kind of had doors open to kind of keep cool there, that every time I was there, she had her children with her. And they were about uh, maybe eight and six at that point. And I was at Northwest Bible, and they had vacation Bible school, and I was going to work and teach in a, in a couple of weeks. And so I asked her, Hispanic woman, didn't know her from Adam, I said, I am going to work in a vacation Bible school next week. Could I come by here and take your children with me for the week? And then I would bring them back after I gave her the time. And she said, oh, yes, they're so bored sitting here. And so I took them to vacation Bible school. And from that, I took them on Wednesday nights at that time. Northwest had, like, kids' activities. I took them with me every Wednesday night until that girl... Uh, was old enough to have a driver's license and started working at the mall in the candy store. And I picked up those two kids. They lived in a trailer. Their mother worked at Dillard's at night to earn extra money. They were there by themselves. I would go by there, pick them up, take them northwest. And sometimes they would invite children from the trailer park to go with us, and I would say, I have to ask your parent if you can get in the car and go with me. And so I would have to tromp to the, the trailer door and knock and try to either say in Spanish or English who I was and what I was doing, and they would always let them go. I mean, you think that's crazy? But this, this was a culture that I think they had observed that I was taking the other two children, and I always returned them, and they seemed to be okay. <laughs> and so why not let their kids go on Wednesday night? And so sometimes I would take kids, and sometimes I would take those kids, and I would never see them again because they didn't go back. or you know. But it was just the most amazing thing. And I think, again, just ask God to help you be alert to teach your children his commands. 
and then how that can overflow into things that God has in mind that you would never um, think of. So I just want to challenge you to take that list and ask God, what, was this, what would this look like to obey you in the burnt cloth years, and how can you use it for however you want to? Okay, and then for the U and the L, for utterly loving God, Exodus 23 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Solomon uh, 2.16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And thinking of that, referring to God. Matthew 24.12 tells us an interesting thing about love. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Our love for the Lord can wax cold. That's something to think about. Revelation, one of the churches, um, God says, about one of them, that he would like to spew them out of his mouth because their love is neither hot nor cold. It's just kind of lukewarm. And you know yourself, you can get in that kind of just tepid relationship with the Lord. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 73.25, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire beside thee. Now, it just almost seems like it's uh, ridiculous to talk about if our topic is loving the Lord our God with all of our souls, that we wouldn't just love him. But the truth is, it's something you've got to think about, to utterly love God. And uh, what you've got to do is just examine yourself and think, I need to love him and treasure him above all else, for there is nothing that you love or treasure more than God. It needs to be a real love affair. The last person you talk to at night, the first you talk to in the morning, the first in crisis, the first with your emotions, the first with your problems, your fears. Uh, don't fall into this default method of texting and Facebooking or phoning before you've talked to the Lord. Just let Him be the initial. And not that you don't do those things, but just don't fall into letting that become your primary but rather letting that become down the road after you talk to the Lord. Um, Love that is not tested is not true love. It's just an infatuation. So once again, when failures or suffering come, don't run from that, but run to it. Because that is a way that the Lord is going to increase your love, test your love, reveal your love. Uh, If you don't Ask the Lord to deepen your love in the uh, calm times. You will not love the Lord in your crisis. Crisis times only reveal what your love for the Lord is. But it's not the time that you really you know, dig in and make it uh, better right at the moment. In hindsight, down the road you'll see that it did. But you've got to have that too in the calm times. And I think that utterly loving God during the burnt cloth years, is is looking at everything through a spiritual lens. That you do not look at things and uh, form conclusions or process them with just culture's viewpoint or TV or movies or magazines or novels or what else. It means having a spiritual eye to see things. And I, I've put on the end of the uh, list where I just recommend some things to you. Edith Schaefer wrote a book that very much affected me. And it was called A Way of Seeing, where she just talked about how through her day, whatever was happening in her day, she was asking God to give her a spiritual eye for it, to see it through a lens that God would show her. And it really did cause me to begin to do that more and more and more. And the more I did that, the more I reflected that to my children, to where... When we were doing things or observing things, we would interpret it in terms of how does this show us about God or what does this show us about his ways or what lasts out of this, what just passes away. It just began to be a real way for us to have um, discussions and um, to share for not only for me, but to share them with the children too. Um, The mark of a new nature, the mark of the Spirit being within you, is to be able to love. A redeemed soul should have a love for the Lord. It's a sign that we are his child. And realize that the more you utterly love God, the better you are going to be able to love your mate and your children. They are definitely linked. 
And remember that God can do marvelous things and he can do impossible things. And so I uh, did this acronym of saving your soul by losing it, obeying Jesus, and utterly loving God. Because we're talking about loving the Lord our God with all of our soul. And God is a trinity. And so to me, the saving your soul by losing it is the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Helping you to be able to be spirit-filled within your inner being. And uh, obeying Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. It is obeying the Son. And utterly loving God is focusing on that I am going to be wildly in love with God the Father. And so we are threefold. God is threefold. And so loving the Lord your God with all your soul, I think, not only incorporates all parts of us, but it incorporates all parts of him too. Now, I wanted to, just in thinking about how I, I talked about man as being a, th- a threefold, here's what legalism is. Legalism is starting out there with the body and doing things that are visibly apparent without it coming from your spirit and your soul. It's like, I am not going to go to any R-rated movies because I just made that up myself, my own decision. Rather than you're letting the spirit uh, fill your soul and coming to a heart and mind and soul conclusion about that, coming from the inside out, And legalism is so dead and boring and really painful. It's just really painful. But letting the spirit work in your spirit, your soul, and then it goes out from there is something totally different. It's life. It's vibrant. It has energy and excitement. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, I want to conclude by going back to the passage. Oh, I thought I had this on the slide, but maybe I, maybe I have it on your outline. That's where I have it. I think I have the verse there. Uh, to go back to that passage in um, Mark 12, where the scribe asked Jesus this question and he gave the answer. But just to look at the context of that whole chapter, at the very end of that chapter, Jesus was in the temple. And he was evidently in the courtyard uh, since there was a woman involved in this and the, and the women couldn't go in other parts of it. And in that area, what they did is they would hang kind of a trumpet-looking thing, but upside down, so that, you know, the horn part was up here, and then there was just a rounded part down here. And that was where they placed their offering. And in those days, didn't use dollar bills, checks, or debit cards. They had coins. And so picture this scene. Jesus is just standing back, and he's watching the people come in, and they're depositing their offering in these things. And there, there could have been as many as 30, they said, hanging on the wall. And so can you imagine if you had a whole lot of coins to clink into that, the sound that was made and how that, you know, caused everybody to kind of look around and there's all this clink, 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 clink. And Jesus is watching. And so here comes this widow. And she comes in. And she drops in two coins. And it said, and when I was just looking up how much it was, it would have been about, the total of the two coins would have been about half a penny. And she dropped him in, and he said that she was giving all that she had and entrusting herself to him. And he noticed that. And that's what I want to encourage you today in these years with a burnt cloth on your shoulder and loving God with all of your soul. Jesus notices, and he is aware of your heart's thinking and your mind's thinking and how you desire for it to work out through your soul and then to be reflected around you. And so every poopy diaper and every mop up with a burp cloth, he's aware. And just asking God's Spirit to help you do all of those things as unto him with a servant attitude, with obeying him in the ways he makes available to you in these years, and just utterly being in love with him, knowing that he cares for you, he has created you to be a complex, unique person. His plans for you are good. You may not understand them all in this season of life, but I can tell you from where I am now, he has done far more than I ever dreamed in my life and heart and in James's life and heart. 
far more than we could have ever imagined 47 years ago. So in these burp cloth years, just be encouraged to hang on to him and to ask him to make you a telescope for him. So I want to wind up just asking you some questions. Are you a telescope revealing God's greatness? Or are you a microscope making yourself bigger and more important and feeling like you need to do that? Uh, What's the temperature reading of your love for God? Is it just lukewarm? Uh, You know, I have a hard time with yeast because you've got to have the right temperature for yeast. And it's hard for me to figure that out. You know, but I figured out if it's if the water's lukewarm, doesn't work. And the same thing with loving God. Just don't let yourself get tepid about that. Spend time in His Word, even if it. In the burp cloth years, I just had cassette tapes of the Bible, and I would just drive and put one in. That's that is how I read the Bible. I did not have time to sit down and read it. I heard it, but it was very helpful. I could just put that in, and I could hear something and cling to it for the day. Um, how can you be obedient to Jesus' commands in these burp cloth years? And encourage one another and share that with one another. Because if God gives you a thought and an idea, then you can share it with others and that can give them a thought and an idea too. So in essence, we all have our hula hoop amount of space. All of you in this room are called to the same role. There's kind of the same dynamics, but each of you is unique. And you all have the possibility to love Jesus with all of your souls that will result in glorifying his amazing work of what he has done in creating you and redeeming you and preparing you for a wonderful future with him. So let me close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you will help all of us in this room to love you with all of our souls and that we would do so in every season and stage of life that I pray especially for these girls right now in this burp cloth season that you would enable them to trust you enough to die to themselves and lose their soul in order to gain the richness of soul that you can fill them with that you would enable them to have creativity and resourcefulness to obey you in ways that fit in with what you call them to do right now in the burp cloth years. And I pray, Lord, that you will just help them to wildly, utterly love you and just to maintain that throughout all of their lives. Let's pray, Lord, that they will just be head over heels in love with you. Lord, I just pray in the name of the one who can save us for all of eternity. Amen. And the little card that you picked up, I just want to encourage you to stick in your Bible and just let that remind you of the anachronism. Oh, and on the things that I suggested at the end on your outline, um, to go back and read uh, the Genesis passage or the Exodus passage about the tabernacle sometime, that would be a kind of a project that maybe you could find some space somewhere, maybe in the elementary school years to do it. Um, <laughs> But God was so specific about everything in that tabernacle, and all of it points to Jesus. So the more you look at that, the more you can just fall in love with Jesus, really, as you do that. And another thing I would really challenge you to is to memorize Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I actually did that in the burp cloth years, and it took me three years to do it. But I would just print it uh, right... No, actually, I tore it out of a Bible because I couldn't print it off in those days. I would just tear Romans 6, 7, and 8, which drove James crazy if he picked up that Bible and needed Romans 6, 7, and 8. But I would just carry it in my purse, and that way I could just learn it a verse at a time. And I really have loved being able to recall that, pray it, think through it. But it just so helps you to see how, the, how God matures us through uh, that beginning point and what we're headed for. Uh, there's uh, this little book I would really recommend to you. It's Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. It's a devotion a day. But when you read this, I think you would agree. She is someone who loves the Lord with all of her soul. At the bottom of each day, she gives you verses. So it's very biblically based. But just the way she writes the devotion for the day is so sweet and tender. And you just see how she does love the Lord with all of her soul. And then I put down a couple of other books that influenced me. The Schaefer one on a way of seeing. Uh, The biography of uh, Amy Carmichael. 
uh, A Chance to Die is a great biography to read to see how someone died to their hopes, dreams, and wishes and how God used them. She left, she was British and she left the UK and went to India and she never went home. She stayed till she died. And just to read how, what God did um, through her. And then what else did I put on there? Anything else? Was there any? Is that it? Okay. Oh, the John Piper book, because that was a good one to read about, Loving God with All Your Soul. His name for that is Jesus Demands for the World, uh, because he said Jesus came and died for all people, and so it's applicable to everyone. But he does a good treatise on taking... My command list is a little different for his, because he broke some of them down into two or three or four, but he does a chapter on each one. So it's a great little book to read, to um, meditate on each one. Okay, I appreciate you all having me. What? We need some Q&A. Oh, okay. Yeah. We have some time here, ladies, so we're going to open it up for um, some questions and answers. So we need to record your question for the recording, so raise your hand and I'll, I'll run around to you if you have questions for Miss Judy. Um, I was just wondering, with four kids, um, you're talking about pouring out your energy and your time and your resources around all those around you, their friends, your friends, and your husband. And I'm just wondering if you took any time or if you had time to do things for yourself that you enjoyed or if that's like a cultural fallacy that we need to not hang on to. <laughs> you know, frankly, it was limited. Yeah. I mean, that's just a reality that it was limited. But the other side of that coin is that I feel like God knows when you do need to be refreshed and when you need to be refilled, and I feel like God provided that. But did I plan it out on a calendar? No. Rarely. Now, James and I did some things in our marriage. Uh, We took, on our anniversary, we would go away for the night. And we would use that as a time to kind of look over the year, past year and look forward to the new year, and we think, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? We looked at budgets. We looked at our giving annually. We did it on an annual thing of looking at our anniversary and thinking, what amount do we have to give for the next year and how do we want to give that and set it aside? What, you know? So we did build that in, which was certainly, I think, good for me. It helped me a lot. But um, As far as your hobbies and fun I stuff. Did, I did not have hobbies. I yeah. learned to play golf uh, when Josh got married. So that was, has been 10 years. You know, but I, did, I didn't do that You because know, I you just couldn't go do that. I did not um, have the availability of a Mother's Day out until after Jordan was born. So it was when I had four of them before because we lived on one salary and it was just wasn't there. And so finally, then I did have a day that I did take all four of them somewhere. So that that was great, but it wasn't until I did have the four of them, actually. But uh, I, I do not feel like I was neglected in any way in those years. Now, I don't mean that on a daily basis I didn't feel that way. But I'm just saying that overall, I look back, I feel like God provided. And sometimes through a business trip, God... Well, God, for us, business-wise, provided an amazing, refreshing thing because James became the person who uh, did the incentive trip for the salespeople in his company, which was in Hawaii every year. And so I did get to go on that, and God always provided somebody to keep the kids. So God provided that. But that wasn't something I thought, how can I get to Hawaii every year? Let's see. Let me begin to plan this. But actually... You know, we, our kids even got to go a lot of time because he had to go so much. So I feel like God provided that. So I think what you need to do is be honest with the Lord. Hey, I, you know, I need some times to be refreshed. I need some times to be away. And will you provide that and make me alert to how that would be? But, but actually, I, I, I really did, rarely did have that with four little kids because they were only two years apart. I mean, it's. Like, my mother couldn't keep all four of them. It's just limited in who could manage all four of them, really. So, And I hope that's not discouraging to you, but encouraging that God is able to still provide in that. I love the little felt board mm-hmm. analogy that you used. How old were your kids when you started to do that? 
they were actually fairly young because we, uh, in our church situation, had a young man die, very young, and he was part, kind of very close to our family, and so that was a very traumatic time for the kids because they were out playing baseball with him at one point, and then he was very, very ill and died. And so we did that at that point, so they were very young. Were they what? No, not all of them. Not all of them were. No, some of them were preschool. But you know what? Uh, we are afraid of death. You know, they don't know what death is. And so if we, we take the initiative and we explain it in terms... Now, I, you don't want to go all, you know, through everything, but just to say, hey, the real you is inside a body house. You know, and that house is going to wear out. You know, just like we have to do repairs all the time on our house here, there's a crack wall that. Eventually this house is going to wear out. Your body house is going to wear out. But the real you is going to live forever, and you will live with Jesus, and there's no point you're going to be separated from him. And, you know, we didn't go into hell. We didn't say the neighbors next door are separated from him, or, you know, or whatever. You know, we just did it real simple. And this is what I even find observing my children now telling their kids things. And I'm sure I was the very same way. You tend to want think, oh my gosh, I've got to explain this whole theological concept and they're going to ask me all these questions. And really they may just be asking you something so simple, so just answer it simple, and then they're just scurrying off And when they come back. But I think about important things like death. It's good to do. I think it's good to do before grandparents die. So they, and I tell my grandkids, I say, you jump for joy when grandma dies because it means I am with Jesus and I love him and I long to see him. And you will be sad. Just like when you leave my house, I'm sad. But I know I'm going to see you again. And so I'm looking forward to that. And when I leave here, when my body house wears out and I go to be with Jesus, you can just think about, I'm going to see grandma again. I just have to wait till the time, but I'll see her again. And, you know, we'll not going to be that you never see me again. So I think telling them that relieves them. It re- and definitely do it all before teenage years because they get, you know, they hear screwy things teenage years. So you, you definitely want to uh, do that. But when I did these little figures, I let them all cut out a figure of themselves and put on the felt board and talk about. And, and I amplified that. When they got a little bit older, we talked about the rapture. You know, here's this group of people. Some are going this way. Some are staying out here in their body house. They're not going. So, uh, you know, you can. it's a base. Then you can build on it. Judy, can you explain um, what the oh. Good News Club is and what it's, that looks yeah. like? It's part of child evangelism, which they have an office here in Dallas. And it's a five-year curriculum, and it's flannel boards. And now they've... I think they've kind of done it where now it's flash pictures where you just hold pictures. But it's a five-year curriculum of Bible stories, and it meets, they suggest that you have a club. It meets an hour a week, and they have, they print songs that are flip pages. You know, they have good pictures with them, and so you sing songs. You have a verse to memorize each week. You have a a Bible story to tell each week. And then each week you do a a continuing missionary story where you just tell a little bit and you leave them hanging. And so there's, uh, so like in a semester, you would just do one missionary story from, you know, the beginning to the end, but you would go through. And they start with a series of uh, Genesis and creation, and they do um, Moses and Joshua, David. Uh, New Testament, they do Life of Christ in three segments, and Peter and Acts. They did. They had a wonderful one on the tabernacle that they do not do any longer. And I, I have tried to find any source who still has those. And I lent mine to somebody, and they didn't return it. So I don't have my own. But it's, it was a wonderful series. I really wish that they still had that. But anyway, and you just pass out. They give you little invitations to pass out that says what child evangelism is and... We just, you know, but basically my kids just invited their friends. Uh, there's kids here at Water. There are kids. There are adults here at Watermark who were part of that. And in the, my little uh, third grade, he'll be third grade, grandson, his PE teacher at his school came to my Good News Club. And she, when I picked him up one day, she goes, Miss Wimberly, Miss Wimberly, do you remember me? I came to the Bible Club at your house. I mean, here she is an adult. And then she told one of the other teachers, she said, and she taught me all about the Bible. So, you know, it's. They were just in and out. It was great. And James really helped me with that. You need to, that needs to be something your mate agrees to because uh, 
Tuesdays he would pick up something for dinner on his way home because kids left about the time. It was, dinner, that, it was about that time when I was thinking, how am I going to get a meal on the table? <laughs> okay. Um, I was wondering, what was your balance between, like, planning, besides the Good News Club that you had once a week, but with your own children, how much did you plan teachable moments, and how much did you just take advantage of co- your conversation with them? I used summers to be very purposeful about teaching them. And so that in a given summer, we would have very specific things we were going to do, very specific verses we were going to learn. Uh, I tried to teach them to meditate on Scripture. by We would memorize the verse and then let them draw pictures. And I still have a lot of those at home and boxes with themselves in the picture. Like if you said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, then let's come and let's draw a picture. Where are you in this picture? What does this picture look like? It's a way to get them to internalize. But I used summers for that. Since I did have a good news club nearly the whole time they were growing up, we were automatically learning a verse every week for a good news club. So that was kind of it. Uh, But we did not have this formal time of, okay, sit down. Now we're going to have, you know, mom's going to teach you this or that. We just did it as we went. Just when things would come up, just trying to give a biblical perspective on how to respond. Um... But, and you know, things I read to them, choosing good good books to read to them and with them. You all have a lot more media possibilities than I had then, but, but I didn't do formal things like that. But the summer I did, I used it as a, and I would reward them. Um, we tried to, things that they wanted, to set out some way they could earn how to get that. Like if they wanted, I remember there was one year they all took tennis at the rec center, so they all wanted a tennis racket. And so we said, okay, let's set out a plan. And we always rewarded memorizing scripture. We still do as adults. On our family vacations, we have something that we're all memorizing before we get there. And it's so funny because the adult ones, the little kids actually do better than the adults. They get off the plane and they want to say it at the, you know, when you're collecting luggage because they memorized it on the plane and they're thinking they're not going to know it by the time you get wherever. So it's funny. But we always rewarded memorizing scripture and that we use that as kind of a way to do that in the summers. Hi, Judy. Um, Coleman, my four and a half year old, is starting to ask a lot of questions that can only be answered with explaining the Trinity, which explaining the Trinity to a a four-and-a-half-year-old, because he knows that Jesus is God, and he knows Mm -hmm. God the Father, and he's asking a lot of questions. How would you explain really simply? You know what? I always used a triangle for the Trinity. I said, you know, the triangle has three sides, but it's a triangle. And if you take away one side, it's no longer a triangle. And so there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so that is what makes God God. And, but if you pull out some of that, he's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has three persons. And just saying honestly to them, this is something Mommy can't totally explain to you because it's very hard to understand. But this is how Mommy remembers it, and this has helped Mommy. And, it, and when they ask things that you really can't answer, just say, Mommy can't explain that. But we can ask God to help us have more understanding. Always, always revert them to God, because you, you're fallible and so on. So To add to that, have, Kim, have you heard the analogy of the water? How water is in three forms, liquid, gas, and solid? Yeah. As great. Okay. I was thinking that could be tangible for a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Anybody else have a question? Okay. Sounds like we're good. All right. Thanks, ladies. Okay.